Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. In this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Dr. Kate Andrea. She's been a clinician for 18 years throughout the United States. Although she has experience treating an array of clients, she specializes in pediatric and adult neurologic physical therapy. She is especially passionate about working with individuals with brain injuries. She has worked in acute care, inpatient rehab, outpatient, and skilled nursing. In 2013, Dr. Andrea earned her board certification as a specialist in neurologic physical therapy, and in 2018, she earned her board certification as a specialist in pediatric physical therapy. Dr. Andrea currently works at the University of St. Augustine for Health Sciences as an assistant professor. She teaches courses in pediatrics, acute and post-acute care, and neuromuscular interventions. She recently graduated with her Doctor of Education degree and earned the Excellence in Dissertation Research Award. Dr. Andrea's research focuses on active learning strategies for healthcare students, interprofessional collaboration in the classroom, and the use of simulation as a teaching and learning tool. To demonstrate her commitment to continued learning, she is currently pursuing her certification as a healthcare simulation educator. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Kate. Hi there. Thank you so much for joining me. Excellent. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited for this episode. I know it's going to be something a little bit different, but excited nonetheless. So tell the people a little bit about yourself and why you are here. Yeah. So my name is Kate Andrea and I am actually a physical therapist by trade. So probably thinking, well, why is a PT on our SLP uh, <laughs> podcast? But I have worked all over the U- U.S. in inpatient, outpatient settings. I specialize in kind of that acute and post-acute care inpatient rehabilitation ICU kind of setting where 
I work on a team. And so, you know, I'm heavily based in pediatrics, but I also do a lot of adult neuro-based care as well. And so anybody that has been in that situation, I think, can identify that we work as a team. So fast forward, I am now a faculty member at the University of St. Augustine for Health Sciences, and I teach in the DPT, the Doctor of Physical Therapy curriculum. And I just really have been drawn to and am interested in how to cultivate students to be ready and practice ready to work in an interdisciplinary or interprofessional team. So really working on that collaboration and If you all know, when you're working on a team, especially in acute and post-acute care, you're not hanging out with others of your own discipline on your team. I, you know, I'm with you guys, SLP, OT, RN, psychology, the medical staff. And so those relationships, those rich, rich relationships that I cultivated in the clinic, I really want to bring back to healthcare students and get them ready to practice. So that's kind of what brought me here today. Awesome. I love it. This is going to be a great topic. I I know that's something that always sort of comes up like, you know, I feel like I'm the only SLP in the building. And it's like, you might be, but go talk to the other professionals. Like you'll learn a lot from them. I promise. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So, oh, this is going to be good. All right. So where, where should we start, Kate? You know, I guess why, why should we teach Um, interprofessional collaboration? I I think sometimes clinicians, especially clinicians that have been in the practice for a long time, take it for granted that we collaborate every day. And that's actually a skill and an art, right? You have to have that knowledge base of your own role and that confidence in your own role. You have to understand what other people do on the team. But then you have to have what's called those soft skills, which are Actually, we're finding in education turning into hard skills, not so much soft skills, but that communication, that collaboration, that that body language, everything that goes into collaboration for patient outcomes. So we know there's increased complexity in patient care these days. I mean, with medical advances and technology, no one discipline can handle a client's care, especially in those acute and post-acute care settings, um, not to mention home health, early intervention, schools, adults, peds, where, wherever you work, it's really an interprofessional or collaborative space that we have to make it so that patients' outcomes are at their optimal level. We know inadequate communication is one of the most common reasons for medical errors to occur. So understanding what's required in the clinic, then shapes our healthcare education, right? We're always, as soon as I jumped into academia, immediately I was referencing what I did as a clinician for all those years. And then now thinking, how do I translate this to the students? And early on, how do, how do I let them know what, what is expected of them? I love that. It's something that I wish that I had learned more about too. I think I just wish I had better expectations of, I think better a better idea that that would be expected of me. You know, it was sort of like I just learned and formulated some relationships on my own and sort of had to find out how beneficial they were on my own before I was like, oh, this is like a thing. Like, this is how people really should collaborate in healthcare settings. And isn't that funny? Until we're, we're, we call it a thing, we just don't think it's a thing. And why not introduce that to students early? And I think for all the clinicians listening too, there's going to be tons in this talk that we can talk about 
of how to make the clinical experience for their students better because, you know, all healthcare students have to do their internships. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, total side note. Kate, do you guys, do you just work with PT students or you said you work in a health sciences department? Do you have a bunch of different professions in there as well? We, we absolutely do. So I think when I jump back to academia and I think anybody in that realm can kind of identify, you are now in your, department. And our department is all physical therapy based, but in a health sciences university, there's occupational therapy programs, speech language pathology, nursing, PA. So we're pretty lucky that we have access to other professionals as faculty, as well as students. And then of course, a strong clinical background doesn't hurt because I have buddies all over that I've worked (laughs) worked with that I can call on and say, come on in. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Where, where should we go from here? You know, I guess, uh, kind of how to teach. Yeah. You know, what, what is that, what does that look like? And what are we looking at as far as not necessarily theory, but as far as different content or context, right? And I think starting out to kind of share that we all have a professional identity, right? And we, we all come out of school or as we start school, we start to cultivate and develop that professional identity and what goes into that. It's experiences that we have, attitudes, beliefs, perceptions of other disciplines and our own. So we really start building that as we go through and get the skills. There's also something called an intraprofessional identity. And we have to have both. Right. So we have to understand our professional identity to then understand how we are going to fit into the intraprofessional team, if that makes sense. So it it gets a little bit, you know, in the weeds, but we have to go through kind of this socialization process to first know ourselves and then figure out everybody else's role and how we fit in. That is a critical time for whether it's a student, a new clinician, right? I think students start to learn, but they don't have the whole context until they probably go out onto their internships. I would, I would venture to say, but making sure that new learners, no matter where they are in their learning, have really solid, good role models, solid learning experiences, um, supported learning experiences so that they're seeing how to behave, how to fit into this team in a positive manner. I think we've all probably worked on teams where there's been a little bit of conflict or some personalities and, you know, that's the natural flow of working in a hospital and the, the um, working on a team such as that you, you have a bunch of different players coming in, but we don't, we want to try not to give our students negative preconceived notions, I would say. So really setting up those learning experiences to be a positive, a positive experience for them is really important. Yeah. Do do you guys practice like, do you do like role playing? Do you do things like that before they go out? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause you know, I know we're talking about like an actual, you know, university setting that you're working in, but so many people listening here are mentors or take students or, you know, take externs. So I think there's so much that the listeners can learn that they can apply, you know, not even in a formal setting, more of an informal setting, but I, I think there's just a lot of good stuff here that they can use and apply as well. Yeah. So that kind of leads me into kind of how we do it in education. And then we can kind of talk about 
how can we translate to that to the clinic as well? And you can probably help in that conversation from the SLP perspective. Um, You know, we'll use simulation and that's what all kind of detail today of how we set that up. Um, And that's what brought me here today is because I worked with a wonderful SLP and brought them into a simulated learning experience with my students to help teach, uh, teach my students. They can do, um, we can have students do cases together. We can do experiential learning, bringing in patients and have people work with the patients. We can do case-based learning, service learning. There's all different types of learning we can do. And I'll point out if people aren't necessarily familiar with interprofessional education versus kind of that interprofessional collaboration, World Health Organization put out a definition for interprofessional education, and that's when students um, from two or more professions work together to learn about from with each other in the hopes of making those practice-ready clinicians and then increasing and improving those outcomes of care for the patient. There is There are opportunities for interprofessional collaboration as well, where students don't necessarily come together. But instead, we have clinicians or experts come in from those other professions to work with our students. So I think there's valuable learning in both. I know that our accrediting body for PT does require interprofessional education. And I kind of took a peek at yours um, as well, the accrediting body for education for SLP programs. And it is in the language in there. So it's not just evidence. It's not just anecdotal. Hey, I was in the clinic. Let's put this in here, but our accrediting bodies for education are actually looking to make sure that we're establishing Interesting. establishing these standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the projects that I completed was, and researched for that matter, we really wanted to look at student perception after one of these interprofessional collaboration kind of extravaganzas, right? And I say extravaganza because they are a lot to plan as an educator. It's <laughs> It's a lot. <laughs> I, love I love that word, extravaganza. It has such like a fun connotation, but I know it's probably like not that fun behind the scenes. But yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. it's. I'll tell you when it's fun. When it's working and you see it working in front of you, that's when it becomes fun. Before that, eh, you know, it's like planning a wedding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like planning a wedding. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking, I'm teaching pediatric physical therapy. Okay, and that's one of the courses. And I'm thinking, how can I bring some interprofessional collaboration in? What is a very typical scenario? And it's something that we've all done. It's the end of the day. You evaluated a client. You come back to the office. Your OT and SLP or your OT and PT partners go, hey, I need to evaluate that client too. What do you know? I set up just that very, very simple scenario for my students. So my students had a case. They understood or they kind of had a worksheet about OT, um, you know, fine motor and uh, swallowing and language and SLP milestones, just very brief. So they understood they had videos of what an OT and SLP do, um, all this prep to understand the other roles. I'm hoping as an educator, they already understand their role as a PT, right? And they have a case. And we come in, we do a little bit of peer work. I have my OT and SLP counterparts sitting in the other room. And I say, okay, who wants to go in and give this a try? It's the end of the day. You're walking into the office. You just need to have this conversation. 
And I will tell you, Teresa, nobody raises their hand. Ah. <laughs> right. And it's okay. Although sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. It's, it's nerve wracking, right? Simulation is a, is a learning method that you really have to make a safe space. And that's why I love it so much. It's so realistic. It's so salient to the students, but it's nerve wracking. They have people watching them perform. Okay. So we send a student in and sure enough, within the first 30 seconds, they're feeling comfortable. I have full faith and confidence in the OT and SLP that I put in that scenario that they are going to be helping the student along and really supporting them through the scenario. So they have their conversation, they come out, and then as a big group, because remember, I have about 25 other students watching them. As a big group, we have a debriefing session, and that's where the learning happens is that debriefing session. We talk about everything from body language to preparedness to PT skills to roles of the OT and SLP, and it's such a rich, rich conversation. I bring the OT and SLP in so they can have the conversation with us. Um, and it's really, really neat. We have gotten some good feedback. Skip to the research side. Results showed that students really increased their collaborative competency. So things like understanding teamwork, understanding communication, understanding roles, um, that's all in the data. They're saying, yes, 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 yes. We are gaining this knowledge. They're also really satisfied with the actual learning experience. So that's been really neat to see. Because I think anybody in education knows we're told a lot of standards of what to cover in content, but we're not told how to cover it. And so here we go, looking into that and trying to, trying to research, finding best practices. Yeah. I think when you said, you know, you looked in our, um, you know, governing bodies standards too. And I was like, oh yeah, of course, interprofessional, you know, communication education is in there. But then I was like, does anybody know what that looks like and how you teach it? Like, I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there's a lot of clinicians that go into teaching. And I'm sure some of your listeners have already had that experience and some definitely will in the future. And you're not necessarily taught how to teach when you go into academic programs. Um, and so it's been really fun to kind of research what's out there, but we are just hitting the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Just hitting the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Cool. I love it. I think just a total side note. So for people listening, I just met Kate today, but so Kate, I have a six-year-old son that has a really rare chromosomal abnormality. So he gets, he's non-ambulatory, non-verbal. So he gets OTPT speech, all the things. And I think it was really fascinating when we moved from New York to Florida, his team here they worked so beautifully together. Like we didn't have that in New York. I loved all the therapists we had, but they were very much sort of just their own disciplines. And it was fine. I, I didn't think anything was wrong. And I still don't, I, I don't know. I didn't think it was wrong. And then when we moved on here, the PT was like, oh, hey, is OT working on this? Or OT was like, oh, hey, have you asked the SLP about this? Do you mind if I get their number? Can I talk to them? And it was like, oh my gosh, you guys are really like proactive with this. And it, I don't know if it was just a total coincidence. I don't know if it's, you know, taught more or fostered more down here or what it is, but I just, it was really refreshing because some of the things that they said, I love just watching both my SLP brain, but also my mom brain loved watching like, oh, I'm so glad the PT brought this up. I'm so glad the SLP was so receptive to that. I'm so glad the OT, you know, is now going to work on that too. So it was just a really sort of beautiful symphony to watch everybody 
work so well together. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really glad you said that because especially in pediatrics, I mean, in adult care, yes, you, you want to see this, but in pediatrics, it's a must. It's a must. And to have a parent perspective of seeing the successful relationship and, you know, how much more rapport and how much more family centered the care is when this actually happens is just so important. And it's so nice to hear, you know, can you, can you talk a little bit, Kate, about, you know, sort of like what's sort of the difference between like interprofessional collaboration and then also like co-treating, because I think sometimes people sort of blur that like, Oh, should I just go in and do a session with them or, and I, you know, obviously there's billing regs and all that around that. So I guess, you know, how do you differentiate the two and how do you know when one should be used versus the other? Yeah. So I think co-treating is a wonderful type of interprofessional collaboration. And I think that's a very obvious type, right? You're both in the same place. You're both treating the same client or patient at the same time. You're both interacting with a family member. You're both interacting, um, you know, with, with that patient in front of you. So I think that's definitely a type of collaboration. I think that other collaborations are during team meetings. I mean, we all have team meetings as inpatient therapists or school therapists or, you know, um, skilled nursing facilities, even outpatient home health care. You all come together as a team. I think skills that are needed are kind of forethought of what are the goals of the other profession? Uh, how can I bolster that other profession? All right. So walking in the room and I'm sure if you met the PT first for your son and they said, I have an amazing OT partner that's going to be coming in afterwards. They're going to help you with A, B, and C. And I'd love working with her. I think you're going to love her too. What a difference that might make as opposed to you not say anything. Yeah. Right. I think a mutual respect is absolutely needed. And for that mutual respect to happen, and again, this is kind of my opinion, you need to see everybody coming to the table with the same effort and the same patient focus um, and that centeredness on the client is absolutely necessary. Um, therapists work hard. Therapists work hard. And there are a lot of moving parts. So really to find your team and find people that you kind of gel with professionally um, is so important. But it's anything from picking up and making that phone call. Hey, you know, Tommy wasn't feeling well. Not sure how he's going to do with you. Check it out. Um, to, hey, I'll order the DME this time. If you get it next time or I, um, so-and-so is really worried about feeding or he was coughing a little bit during my session. Can you, can you help me out with that? I wasn't sure quite what to do. So I think it's in your spirit. And I think true team members, if you've ever been on a true interprofessional team, I think it's, it's in your blood. It's in your spirit when you're doing it, but it's also just those little extras that really make the, make the gears turn and the teamwork. Yeah. Yeah. Probably having an open mind and leaving the ego at the door. There you go. <laughs> that's a, that's a talk that's that I have order. with all of my students. Yeah. I know. I was like, Hey, you guys are going to think you are the best of the best as a physical therapist. Go sit down with somebody with a brain injury and tell me how that goes without an SLP. Yeah. And <laughs> And then it kind of, you go, okay, you know, I, I have a piece of the puzzle and a very important piece of the puzzle and everybody does, but let's, let's figure out how to come together. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you sort of, I'm curious to go, go deeper with this actually, if there's 
Because I, I think it's such a tough balance between fostering independence and confidence and also sort of taming the ego boost. You know, it, it's it's tough to say, you know, you want to show up confident and competent and confident, but also leave your ego at the door. It's it's an interesting dichotomy to try to teach. And yeah, so I'm curious your thoughts on that. If you have any strategies or yeah. Yeah. And I would say that I learned my best strategies modeling my clinical instructors. It's hard to teach in the classroom. Um, very difficult to teach in the classroom, but I, I try to give kind of little examples, right? Instead of walking in and saying to the nurse, the patient needs pain medicine. They're in way too much pain for me to get them out of bed, you know, or whatever, you know, your discipline might say, maybe soften it a little bit and say, Hey, I noticed, you know, Mrs. Smith is in a little bit of pain during my session. Would you mind um, telling me or um, working out a medication schedule that might work a little bit better? You know, that, that would you mind the asking the questions before making any sort of assumption it is excellent to have a global understanding of somebody else's role, but I never want to assume I know thing, you know, everything about somebody else's role. So I think co- coming with that humility and when you don't know, ask a question. People want to educate. They want to tell you. And what kind of connection could you make with somebody if you just ask? Why? Can you tell me a little bit about why you did that in the co-treat? I didn't quite understand. Or, you know, when I'm working with my SLP partners, tell me a little bit more about where you need the head position for somebody to have a good swallow. And then I say, well, why is that? And then they go into all the anatomy and I'm like totally wowed, you know, and I was like, wow, okay, never knew that, Yeah, you know, or tell me a little bit more about the diaphragm. Like I want to put them in a prone position, but I don't know if that's, you know, okay. So I think if people come with humility and just simply ask the questions, offer what they know, and then really sit back and listen is, is the key. I think it also sort of asking questions too shows that you genuinely care also, you know, instead of just, Hey, I need this done. You know, it's, it's asking, you want their feedback. You want sort of this patient centered approach. You want, yeah, the, the feedback from all angles. So I think it just, it, it shows up. Yeah. You said a level of humility and yeah. Yeah. We're not robots. Yeah. We are humans working. <laughs> yes. We are humans working together in a stressful and complex situation. And we're in charge of other human beings care. I mean, there are, go- you know, we all have our strengths. We all have our weaknesses, but you know, just, just what you said, just ask the question. Yeah. Come with humility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. So we've kind of talked a lot about students and what, how to teach students. And I'm thinking, okay, I have to get them to quote unquote entry level. And that's kind of what teachers are always thinking, but I like to take it a step further and really think, well, how can this information apply to clinicians or people in administration in the hospital? You know, I'm sitting on this side of it and I completed a, you know, educational degree and things like that. But we don't realize just how much therapists already know about education, about working together. And we always, every single day, we have an opportunity to educate, whether that's a family member, a student that's in, you know, uh, that we are interning and assisting, whether it's another profession. So we're always kind of in that mode of education. We, again, just take it for granted as clinicians. So 
how does this interprofessional collaboration, how can it be fostered in the clinical setting without thinking about academia right now? Because not everybody is a faculty member. And I think there's a lot of different opportunities, certainly. Let's take, for instance, maybe start with students. You have a student that comes in. My first question to that student, you know, once you get all the passwords and the badges and everything else set, what kind of experience do you have working with other professions? I always like to assess my learner first. And that's the fancy way of saying, just ask the question to figure out where they are. If they say, oh, well, I did an internship and I worked with, you know, OT and PT all the time, you know, you have a a, a base. If they say, I don't even know what a PT does, then you have a different idea of a starting point, right? So something as simple on that first day with that student, what type of, you know, collaboration have you done? Or do you have any experience with that? You know, I think we all do the typical, why don't you go hang out with PT for a session? Why don't you go hang out with OT for a session? Why don't you, you know, kind of thing. And that's fantastic. I think students learn a ton from observing other professions. So that's um, definitely one. But what if you went a little bit further? And I know there's not a lot of time in the clinic. I have had many students and you are just rushing to get to those clients. And then you're trying to debrief real quick and teach. And there's a lot going on. What if there's a student from another profession that's in the same department at the same time, tasking them with the same patient, but also tasking them to collaborate together and potentially present informally something back to their instructors. Um, so setting them up with a student, maybe a PT student or an OT student or an RN student, hey, go collaborate, maybe give them a few questions to kind of work through together. So that's already starting to foster in that working together. You always have those students that struggle a little bit. And so if you're noticing that a student is struggling in the clinic, maybe setting up something like a simulation and it doesn't have to be a, you know, extravaganza like we talked about before. It does not have to be like that, but getting one of your colleagues to come at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day and have a conversation with them and kind of set them up with something. And then you're watching and you give some very direct feedback because watching these interactions in the moment is great. But a lot of times we forget to come back around to it later with students. Um, and so really setting something up for that remediation purpose, if somebody is struggling is something to, something to think about um, at the end of the day. If you notice a really good interaction, jot it down on your paper. If you notice a really maybe not so good interaction, jot it down on your paper as a clinical instructor at the end of the day. Hey, tell me a little bit about what you thought about how the OT and the RN interacted during that meeting. And let the student debrief about that a little bit. See what they say. See if they noticed, you know? Yeah, I kind of noticed there was a little bit of, you know, tension. Can you think of a way to make that better? And let them problem solve through it. Even if it's a three-minute conversation, bringing it to light is better than letting them think that that was the way it should look, Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of opportunities with students in the clinic. And again, like you said at the beginning, just call it a thing. Yeah. (laughs) Students don't realize (laughs) that this is actually a thing. It's a skill. (laughs) 
to have. And so, um, I'm hoping I'm not rambling on no, too much no. about that. No, I, I, love, that topic. I, love that. I, I love what you said about sort of pairing up students because actually I remember when I was in my externship, there was a dietitian um, student doing her externship as well. And so we sort of just became buddies just by default because we were both sort of, you know, not just the new grads, not, you know, full on clinicians yet, but I learned a ton from her and I, you know, we would sit and, you know, have lunch together. We would sit and have coffee together some days and just ask each other really just innocent questions. Like, you know, what, you know, what do you guys do in this situation? What do you guys do in that situation? I just learned so much. And I think, you know, having that experience really fostered my interest in wanting to know more about other professions. And it suited me really well. I worked in an LTAC and I didn't have a lot of trach and bent experience when I first worked in that LTAC. And I just, I remembered how much I had learned from that diet, diet, what would you say? A dietetics, dietary student. Oh, I thought it was a dietitian student. I don't dietitian, know. What I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I need your field. I'm not trying to. Um, <laughs> but it helped me so much to just feel confident in asking the respiratory therapist for some guidance with, you know, these trach vent patients and, you know, what, what do you feel comfortable? What vent settings, you know, are you okay with, you know, th- things like that. So it, it, in, it was interesting because I remember that respiratory therapist was like, I'm so glad you asked me all these questions. Like it's really so helpful, you know, for us to work together instead of just me coming in and then you coming in. And, you know, I was like, I just appreciate your feedback so much. And, and so I'm glad, like I said, I'm glad this is a thing. Um, Cause I sort of learned it, you know, by, by default, but yeah, it's, it's, it's so powerful what we can learn from other professions and just add such a richer experience, but ultimately benefits the patients, which is what we're all here for. So. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I'll add like in the clinic, simply introducing yourself and your profession opens up that door. I mean, it's so simple to say, introduce yourself, but some students won't. They're, they're timid and, you know, rightfully so. They, they, I mean, walking into a hospital situation is intimidating. Um, but you know, saying, hi, my name is Kate. I'm the physical therapist working with so-and-so. Can I ask your name? You know, and, or if you can't see their badge, oh, what are you doing with this, you know, patient or how are you working with this patient or how can I help in your care? Whatever those questions are to kind of break that ice. Because I think sometimes in healthcare, we're here, there and everywhere. We're worried about productivity, you know, all of these kinds of things. But if I introduce myself that first time, the next time I see that respiratory therapist in the ICU, hey, how you doing? The next time, hey, I'm, I really would like to get, you know, Miss Smith sitting up. Is there any way that you could be a second set of hands and kind of watch those vent settings for me? You know, and it, it, it just in turn, I think, creates a better confidence in yourself when you have that collaboration. And that's really the name of the game. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to add in, you know, okay, so you don't have a student in the clinic. You're not a faculty member. What about administrators? What about rehab managers? What about just staff therapists? Like how can we improve um, in this collaboration? And I think there's, you know, opportunities for in-services back and forth, you know, Hey, the nursing staff's going to host rehab today in a lunch and they're going to talk about, you know, their goals and their metrics and their, you know, stuff. How can we help? Or maybe um, it's really informal. PT is going to present to OT. Maybe, you know, SLP is going to do a little in-service here. And 
starting to kind of open up those lines of communication, new hire orientation is a key place to set down that culture because this interprofessional collaboration is really a culture. It it, it has to be, it, it has to kind of run deep through everybody in the hospital system or else it just doesn't work. So new hire orientations, have them spend the day with other people, have a formal program. So it's not, it's not inconvenient. It's not laborious. It's not, oh, I'm intruding kind of feeling. That would be kind of one of those negative experiences, but really making this part of orientation. Yes, we do this because we want to invest in our patients, you know, care, special projects. If you have two people that are leaders in the profession, an SLP leader on the team and a PT leader on the team, put them together and say, how can we increase um, collaboration and see what they come up with. People are always, I think, especially staff therapists, they have ideas. They have ideas of what's going to make the system better. But sometimes we don't always have the time, the energy, the extra second to make it happen. And so I think leadership really can cultivate if if they pull a time out and say, you guys are leaders in your field. Let's see what you can do together. Yeah. I really, I want to highlight your one point you made about, you know, having the nurses present to the therapists as well, because I think so many times we, we get one track minded and, and not for any reason other than, you know, productivity, all the demands we have to do, you know, and it's like, I have to see this patient. I have to check this box. I have to do this assessment at the same time. You know, the nurse is coming in. I need to get this. I need to get that. I need to get this. And it's just sometimes just this chaotic mess of who can get to the patient first, who can do what first to the patient. You know, we're not supposed to do things to our patients, but it's true. That's what we do. So, but I, I think it, there's value in knowing exactly what other professions are doing to measure things, because I think that can be valuable. You know, if you know that nursing has to make sure that they get, you know, these stats today or make sure that they document this, this, and this today. And if it's something that overlaps with something that you've noticed, it's, it's just so much helpful and so much more beneficial to the patient and also just helping being a team player. And I think sort of once I figured out what things were important, what other metrics were important that nurses or, you know, administrators needed to be aware of, it just sort of perked my ears up like, oh, I, oh, I know this answer. I can help them out. Or, oh, I noticed this today. Like, let me bring that to their awareness. And, and I think that's just what fosters that culture because then, you know, it's reciprocated, you know, they might notice on a different day, like, you know, oh, the patient's having trouble breathing today, you know, might not be a good feeding and swallowing day. And, and I just think, yeah, all, all that collaboration really helps. Yeah, no, I, I completely, completely agree. And that reciprocation is, is just some of the beauty of it. And once you really feel that teamwork and reciprocation, I think, you know, it when you feel it, and you can really tell that it's a well-oiled machine then. They have your back, you have theirs, and everybody has the patient's back because that's what's what's the most important. I, I think a lot of, um, from a PT perspective, you know, I am thinking fall risk, right? We're always thinking fall risk. Nursing is all like double thinking fall risk than us, right? I mean, those are some big metrics in a hospital system of whether or not the patients are falling and how can we all make sure that we are in collaboration. Well, you think, oh, okay, so that has to do with mobility and that has to do with, well, nursing is on after, yeah, after 4.30 when we all leave, right? You know, kind of thing. So it's their responsibility too. But how about 
if the patient can't communicate like they normally would, do we think that could impact fall risk? And absolutely. If, if, a, if a client cannot push that call button and communicate and they have to go to the restroom, now that is an added layer and it can make that care so much more rich if we can figure out a way for that patient to communicate. We could also prevent those falls. So something that seems potentially unrelated to your profession, I think everybody has a little bit of stake in the game with that. I agree. And sometimes the other professions don't know yet. And so why not invite everybody to the table and let everybody kind of problem solve together? I I know, for instance, I'm petrified of somebody aspirating. (laughs) I'm always like with my speech partners, like, what can they have? What can they not have? What do I have to do? <laughs> we'll get together for coffee sometime, Kate. We can, we can go, we can dive into all that. Yeah. Um, anything else? This has been great. This is so helpful. I think just some really tactical strategies. Like I said, there's, you know, a lot of listeners just have students or, you know, do a lot of mentoring. And I think this is really valuable because I think this is unfortunately an area that we don't get much formal training in and it, and it just, it, it's, it's so valuable. It, it's so rich in what it can add to not only our own profession, but the teamwork, the culture and essentially the patient. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, if somebody even is in, in any one position to, you know, no faculty doesn't have a student, isn't in a leadership position, can't do a big project right now. The biggest thing you can do is model. Yeah. Model good interprofessional care and interprofessional communication collaboration. If you can model that, you never know who's learning from you, who's watching at that moment. Um, a very seasoned clinician might see you handle a situation in a novel manner and it kind of eases tensions or eases, you know, what's going on in the situation and they're going to learn something from you. So always, always modeling. Everybody has kind of a role in this. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you, Kate, sort of a tough question. How do you teach or how do you explain to your students sort of how to collaborate with physicians and in sometimes we're intimidated by physicians or we don't, you know, I I know I've mentored a lot of SLPs that'll say, you know, I'm, I'm just the SLP. I can't get the doctor to listen to me or, you know, and and it might be our own preconceived notions, but I'd love to hear sort of how you handle those situations. Oh, that's a, that's a fantastic question. And, you know, I kind of set them up for success in starting small, I will say. So starting small. Talking about, you know, probably bringing to light the hierarchical system that we all kind of think, oh, it might be going away, but we all kind of really know it's still there in, you know, some hospital systems. And it is intimidating to call a physician and bring something to light or potentially question something that's going on with the patient. It takes a lot of confidence in your role and knowledge. So I first talked to the student about being prepared. I say, you, you have to find all of the information write it down, know exactly what you're going to present, and then try to think, and I help them as a instructor, what other questions might be coming at you. Because I think that's part of the fear is what if they bark another question and I don't know the answer, right? <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, clinically, I, I get them very prepared for the conversation. Um, I think it's something they have to go through and be successful at to really start to gain that confidence. 
Obviously, I model it numerous, numerous times before I would ever ask somebody to do that. Um, but I might start with a physician that I know well and will have a, that positive, you know, response, a simpler question like a weight bearing status or a other sort of something. I won't throw them into the lion's den <laughs> immediately, but I think just really scaffolding. It's something that we talk about in the education world. It's called scaffolding. So giving a lot of support at the beginning. So you can imagine a scaffold on a building, whole lot of support on the building. And then as they start to grow in their skills, starting to take away some of those supports. And we do this with our clients all the time. We are trained to scaffold for our clients. And now we need to do that for our students as well. And I, I tell them realistic stories. Hey, I once called this physician. I woke him up because he was on call. He was grumpy at me. <laughs> I, I said my piece. I got it resolved. I hung up the phone and, you know, at first I was shaken by it, but you kind of realize you leave that ego, you leave that personal aspect at the door and go, okay, I got my answer. Let me go see my client. Right. It's, I can't really stew on what just happened and how it happened. Um, and maybe that's just my personality. <laughs> um, I don't want to put that on everybody in your audience, but truthfully, sometimes I do give my students pep talks like, yes, this may happen. And so what if it does? Yeah. And let them respond to me. So, so what if he's grumpy to you on the phone and they can tell me all their fears right now? And sometimes just bringing that to light. Okay. Let's go make that call. We know the worst that can happen now. <laughs> well, what, what about sort of an added layer of, of like emotional intelligence? Do you sort of talk about that with them? Yeah. So that is a super hot topic in education. <laughs> um, and I can say as a faculty member, we see the span, uh, the whole spectrum of that, that emotional intelligence. I can say that I'm not an expert on that kind of working through with them. I think everybody probably would have a different way of doing that. Again, bringing it to light and talking about what emotional intelligence is and how it can be cultivated. And just simply the fact, if you have a very novice learner saying it can get better, yeah, you can cultivate this. It's not like you're going to be like this forever and then kind of give them that preparedness, that confidence and building them up, that real, that scaffolding to start then taking away those supports. And as you do that and as they learn, you see that emotional intelligence kind of turn around is kind of anecdotally what I'll say about it. But again, I'm not an expert on that in any sort of way. I just. It certainly impacts the team. Yeah. It impacts interprofessional communication. It impacts interpersonal communication and being able to recognize that as an instructor or mentor mm -hmm. sometimes doesn't happen. You, you just can't figure out what's going wrong, right? Like with a student or a learner, you're going, huh. But if, if you find that education about EI, it's really, really interesting and kind of just, again, it's a thing. Yeah. It's a thing. <laughs> definitely a thing. It's, it's interesting. You know, it's like something that I've worked on just like in my personal life. And then you realize the parallels to it in your professional life too. And you're like, Oh, crud, I definitely could have handled the situation better or probably shouldn't have said it that way. Or, you know, and obviously hindsight's 2020, but I think it's, it's interesting. Just so, like you said, a lot of these soft skills that sort of essentially should be hard skills, I think. And, and just, 
the awareness of the concept, you know, not that, like you said, we're not experts in this and it's not something that we're, we should spend a ton of time teaching, but I think being aware of this concept and that, you know, take some time to learn about it because it can be really beneficial if, if it's something you can really get a grasp on. Well, and I always at, um, courses and CEU, you know, conferences, I jump to those, to those talks because I just don't know enough about it, you know? And I think that there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity to certainly bring that into healthcare in general. And how does that impact, uh, how does that impact care, teamwork, all of that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Did we cover all the things, Kate? I think so. I think so. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been so, so helpful. If any final thoughts, anything to leave the people with? I'm just happy to educate, you know, about this topic and bring it to light and really bring it to light and the impact. If you, if you don't exactly know how to measure a range of motion or if you don't exactly know how to do one of your speech skills, you can learn that. Um, you can also learn how to work on a team and team di- team dynamics. There's plenty of literature out there, team dynamics, but also exploring yourself. And what personality do you bring to the team? What skills do you bring to the team? Maybe what aspects that you would like to improve on is really a nice reflective exercise. And I would be happy to you know collaborate with anybody out there listening if you're having an idea of how to bring interprofessional collaboration and learning into the clinic, into the classroom. Um, I would be happy. I'm kind of a nerd in the education kind of aspect of things of building these salient learning activities, um, no matter what the setting. And I would, I would love to help walk you, walk you through that. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kate. I appreciate that so much. Yes. Thank you. Pleasure talking to you. Yeah. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit SwallowYourPridePodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.